All right, so jumping into a new book, so 1 Peter. Um, hopefully, it won't take us, you know, with the 86 studies uh, that Psalms took to get through, uh, but we'll see. So I want to begin with a little background information. And, uh, and so first of all, the author, as you can probably guess, is, the, is Peter, is it's the Apostle Peter. And the date that he wrote this was about 64 or 65 A.D., and so he's been, he's known the Lord, walked with the Lord for something like, you know, 30 plus years, maybe 35 years at that point. Um, and this is not too long until his death. So he was going to be martyred by uh, Caesar Nero in 67 AD. So he wrote this letter just a few years before his death. Now the audience, we'll talk more about them in a little bit, but they're uh, referred to as the pilgrims of the dispersion. And again, I don't want to talk too much about that because that's one of my main points. We'll discuss who those are. But there is something that's important for us in hermeneutics. Is hermeneutics is the, um, the science or the art and science of biblical interpretation. And so I just finished a hermeneutics class last week that I'm taking online. And, um, and so one of the things that, that was stuck out to me is it says the Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. And that's really important because as we're reading 1 Peter, we have to remember we're not the original audience. You and I are not the original audience of 1 Peter. So it wasn't written to us, but because of the Holy Spirit's uh, inspiring, it's written for us. Not the original audience, but we're the contemporary audience. And so there's so much for us to learn. I just want to remind you related to this idea of, of the Bible or this letter not being written to us, but for us. I want to remind you of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 where Paul writes, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we always want to remind that as we, as we study the word of God is saying, okay, well, well, maybe I'm not, you know, an Israelite w wandering in the wilderness, but there's still something I can learn here. God can still speak to me through this. The Holy Spirit can reveal truth to me through this. And so, so it is. For these original pilgrims that Peter's writing to, we're not them. But there's a lot that we can learn from what Peter has to say uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, the place of writing is Peter most likely wrote this from Rome. In chapter 5, verse 13, he's going to say that he's in Babylon. We don't think that's literal Babylon. We think that that was a, a reference to Rome at that time, which would make sense. And we'll get to that as we get into chapter five at some point. Um, and then also we see we're going to really focus on the purpose. So the purpose of this letter is to encourage believers in the midst of suffering. And so that's why I've titled this first message, Hope for Pilgrims. Because what I, I hope to um, make a case for today is that you and I are pilgrims as believers and we're going to suffer, and we're going to have difficulty and hardship in this world, but there's a reason to be hopeful. There's a reason to be encouraged. And, and so that's the purpose of this book, to encourage believers in the midst of suffering. And then my approach, you know, as I was talking with Hugo about this this week, I, you know, originally I thought, I'm going to finish Psalms, and, you know, we're just going to kind of overview through books of the Bible, and we're going to just cover a lot of ground. And I started studying this, and I was like, you know, what if I did two verses today? <laughs> well, what about that? Because as the Lord really spoke to me as I studied this book and really began to, he began to open up things to me, um, what, what, what kind of came to my mind is I want to approach this book in a devotional word study style. Just the words of this book are so pregnant with meaning. There, there's just so much there that I couldn't bring myself to simply push through. I wanted to sit down in it. I really want to digest it. It's just like, you know, when you, when you have a wonderful meal, 
When you sit down at a, at, a, at a really good restaurant, the goal is not to push through your meal as quickly as possible. Instead, your goal is to enjoy it, to savor it, to appreciate all that's there, and that's going to be my approach. So, so it's going to move pretty slowly at times, um, but with that, I don't want it to become overly academic. I want it to be devotional. My goal is to teach you these things, for me to study these things, for me to understand these things, not merely so that we can be more intellectual, but actually so we can be more devotional, so we can know the Lord better. And as I was thinking about it, and I was like, man, how can I justify spending so much time in this way? I was reminded of Genesis 1, that God created the world through the word, that Jesus is the word, and so spending time Really digging deep into God's word, word by word, I think is something very valuable, and I think it has um, just some, a lot of, a lot of uh, import for our lives. And so with that in mind, I want to say something that may seem a little out there for where we've just been going, but I, but I think I hope to make it clear, and it's this. The reality is that we always live out what we truly believe. We always live out what we truly believe. In other words, if you truly believed, you know, that, so let's say there was a bomb in your car, you wouldn't go casually to your car and start your car. <laughs> you, if you really believe that, that would affect how you do life. Well, so my hope is that as we move through this book, we will all believe the truths that are here so that we might live those out. So often for you and I as believers, we say we believe in heaven, but we don't really live like that. And so we're not living like that. We're not believing as we should. So it's my hope that you and I would, would kind of break through barriers. We would break through these things that are maybe holding us back from this true belief so that we might start living out in a, in a more full way what God has for us. So with this as our introduction, let's go ahead and read the first two verses or the two verses that we'll be work through this morning as we seek to mine the great riches of this beautiful letter. So this is essentially Peter's greeting. And so that's where, as far as we'll get today. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the, the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. That just makes me want to have a coffee right there. Uh, <laughs> Can I get a, uh, a venti Cappadocia, please? Uh, Asia and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. So I've divided this message into three sections. We'll see, first of all, in the first part of verse one, we'll see Peter. The second part of verse one, we'll see pilgrims. And then in verse 2, we'll see privileges. So Peter, pilgrims, and privileges. So let's move into our first section, and that's Peter. And again, we find this in the first part of verse 1. And it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So remind yourself that letters in the ancient world, they began with who was writing them. Now, it's a lost art, and there's probably people sitting here today who have never written a letter <laughs> too young for that. Uh, you'd have only ever texted or emailed. Now, so when you get an email, you know immediately who it's from, right? If, if they're, obviously, if they're a contact, if it's spam, you just hopefully it went to your spam folder. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, when we wrote letters, like when I wrote a letter growing up, you would write the letter, but you would put your name at the end. It, it was a lot better in the ancient world. In the ancient world, they started 
with your name. And so that's what Peter's introducing himself. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So as I began to you know, sit down and study this this week, I was like, well, I just want to think about Peter for a little bit. And as I just began to think about the apostle Peter, just the thought of this man brings a smile to my face. It's so exciting. And, and my relationship with Peter has changed drastically over the years. Because when I first became a believer, Peter was always the guy of like, Peter messing up. Peter, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. You know, there was all of these things. And then actually somewhere, you know, kind of in my early days and in my own pride and hubris and youth, then I just thought, man, I, I say so many bad things about Peter from the pulpit. I'm kind of worried to meet him one day. <laughs> you know, how's that going to go? And I thought, well, he'll be redeemed and I'll be redeemed. It's probably okay. But what happened as, I, as I've gotten older, as I've gotten to know myself better, I've come to appreciate Peter so much more. Because Peter is a guy just like you and me. I think he's a, a person who makes mistakes, uh, who comes back from them. And so I think he is, for me at least, he's the guy in the New Testament that I can, can most understand, that I can most associate with because of that. So I just want to run through a quick reminder of Peter's life as far as we know. Peter was a fisherman who once walked on water, who asked many questions and who confessed that the Lord Jesus was the Messiah. But soon after, he was also rebuked for being a mouthpiece of Satan. Peter was arguably the Lord Jesus' closest friend. It could be argued, and I think strongly, that he was Jesus' best friend as far as a human being goes. And with James and John, he got to witness the transfiguration of Jesus, the glory of Jesus up on the mountain. He got to see Moses and Elijah. But again, in that circumstance, he was rebuked for speaking out of turn, where God the Father had essentially say to Peter, shut it and just listen to my son. Peter once caught a fish with a coin in its mouth so that he might pay the temple tax for he and Jesus. Peter asked the Lord many times, you know, or sorry, asked the Lord how many times we should be willing to forgive someone seven times. And that's when Jesus says no, 70 times seven. Peter fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was supposed to be on watch, when the Lord specifically asked him to watch and pray. And then Peter made matters worse by cutting a man's ear off before running away. The night only got worse for Peter as he denied the Lord three times and then once again fled the scene and wept bitterly over his faithfulness after having caught sight of the Lord. Peter hid out for a couple of days, but when word came that the Lord had risen from the tomb, he ran to the tomb, only John was faster, <laughs> and he stepped in and saw that the tomb was empty. And wonderfully, the resurrected Lord Jesus was, was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Peter realized it was him, puts on his cloak, jumps into the water, swims to shore, and there the Lord Jesus wonderfully restored Peter to ministry. Peter took the lead in the early church. He, you know, they, as they chose a disciple or an apostle to replace Judas. And then as the Holy Spirit fell upon the, the apostles there at Pentecost, what happened is, is Peter became the spokesman. He offered an apologetic. He rebuked the crowd. And in doing so, he preached on the day of Pentecost. And 3,000 were saved and the church began. He healed many people along the way. He raised a woman from the dead. He was arrested multiple times because he continually stood up against the unrighteous religious leaders and twice angels released him from jail. He was God's spokesman at the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. 
and he ministered to the previously despised Samaritan people. Peter received visions from the Lord, and Peter was the first to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And Peter defended God's grace for the Gentiles at the Jerusalem Council. It's this Peter, ceaselessly interesting, undeniably flawed, but wonderfully, and u- wonderfully loved and used by God that we're going to be hearing from in our study. And I think it's an inspiration because as you think about all that Peter did, all that God did through Peter, I, I want you sometime this week to think about all the things God's done in your life. All the wonderful things and the story he's putting together, that narrative that he's creating in your life. And I think Peter is an inspiration for all of us. So let's continue on in verse 1. We read Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now we hear that word apostle quite a bit. We know that the 12 disciples are the 12 apostles. But what does it mean? What is an apostle? Apostle is simply one who is sent out by another as a delegate or a messenger. And so we've all been apostles with a little a, if you will, at some time or another. Anytime someone sent us and say, hey, go take this message, right? Maybe when you're little, you know, and your, and your dad was outside and your mom wanted to send a message to him, said, hey, go tell your dad so-and-so. You were an apostle. You were a messenger. You were sent. And so what I, I want you to understand about an apostle as we seek to start applying this to our life, how we can be apostles, is, is an apostle's life is a life of movement. It's a life of going. It's a life of doing something. The Christian life is not a spectator sport. It's not something to stagnate in. It's a life of movement. We we know this because Jesus said this in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Now you understand that, you know the Great Commission, right? But oftentimes we kind of um, say, well, the Great Commission is really for um, missionaries, right? It's for those that are going somewhere. But actually the construction in the Greek is actually as you're going, make disciples. So the idea is that for you and I as believers, we are to be apostles. We're to be ones going out with the good news. We're to be going out wherever we are in our job or in our home, sharing the truth of the gospel as God provides opportunity so that we might minister to other people. So we too are to follow Peter's example and be apostles, be those who go out and do what God has called us to do. So we see this clearly in the life of Peter. Again, Peter traveled in the Gospels and did the work of the ministry with the Lord Jesus under his, um, his oversight. You can read about that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But also in the book of Acts, you see him going around sharing the good news of the Gospel. So again, the application for you and I is that as believers, we should be willing, like Peter, to be apostles of Jesus Christ. Willing to faithfully serve him in the day-to-day of our lives. See, Peter in the gospels asked, Lord, we've given up all for you. What are we going to get? Right? That was kind of his attitude. And and Jesus had an answer for him. But that's where we go wrong. You and I oftentimes think, well, if I serve the Lord, what am I going to get? Or oftentimes we think, well, what am I going to lose? Instead of saying, man, this is the calling. This is my purpose for living. God has called me to be an apostle. God's called me to be a messenger. God's called me to go out and share the truth. And what we begin to find is that's where fulfillment is. 
Fulfillment can't be found by trying to solve it, to trying to get it by something that you think you should do. Fulfillment is only found in obedience and serving the Lord, doing what he asks you to do, and then you'll find, ah, oh, this is what I was made for. It's a wonderful, wonderful picture we're going to see from Peter. This brings us to our second section, and that's pilgrims. Um, in verse 1, second part of verse 1, notice, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, maybe your translations have something different than pilgrims. The New King James says pilgrims. And uh, when I think about pilgrims, inevitably, I always think about, you know, American history. <laughs> right? I think about guys dressed all in black, big buckle on their hats, you know, the cornucopia. I think of all that. I think of um, our, the school where Brandy and I teach, Midland Classical. And it started in 1998. And there was some debate early on, would we be the pilgrims or the knights? I'm glad the Knights, <laughs> I'll be honest with you, I'm glad the Knights won out because when I think of pilgrims um, and kind of our, in our culture, I don't think of something like, ah, you know, fighting pilgrims? Uh, how does that work? But what a pilgrim is in the Bible is a stranger, a, a sojourner, a temporary resident. And that's so vital for us to understand. This is an incredibly important truth. As believers, we are pilgrims. Okay, this is not our home. This world is not our home. And so we're strangers on the earth. Uh, and so we're on our way to our true homeland. So if you can get this idea as we move through um, 1 Peter, and if you can get this idea just as you move through life that you and I are pilgrims, that we're on our way to our homeland, that we're not there yet, and, and so that, that if we can understand that, if we can come to grips with that, what will happen is it'll transform how we live our lives. Because our lives is not all about, I got to get as much as I can now, and I got to kind of settle everything now, and I got to make everything permanent now, I need to make sure people remember me here, all that kind of stuff. No, no, no. It's, I'm a pilgrim. I'm moving through. I'm traveling through. I want to share uh, a quote from C.S. Lewis in his most famous work, Mere Christianity. He said this, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. It's beautiful. We all have this, and, and it talks about, um, I think it's in Ecclesiastes, that God's put eternity in our hearts. We, we all have this desire that no experience in this world can satisfy. Now, we have high, high moments, high godly moments, wonderful things. Our, our, our wedding ceremony, you know, the, the birth of a child, we have all these things, but what happens is those feelings fade. And so the, the reality of the situation is um, God is not going to allow us to ever be fully satisfied, fully fulfilled in this life, because this is not our home. We're always to be moving forward to him. Now, for more on this important subject, I want to have you turn to a few places, get you thinking. Would you please turn to Hebrews chapter 11? Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 13 through 16. From 1 Peter, almost everywhere is left. So <laughs> turn left. Uh, Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. As you're turning there, I want to give you a little context. This is the, Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of faith, okay, where the, the writer to the, the Hebrews is explaining um, what faith looks like and how faith has been demonstrated. And so he's talking here about some of what we would consider Old Testament saints. So they lived under the old covenant. And he says this about them. But these all died in faith, not having received the promises, not having received the new covenant, right? But having seen them afar off and were assured of them, 
embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. I love that. So the, this, these great works of these Old Testament saints, this, this, um, this act of faith, the walk of faith, was possible because they knew the promises were still ahead. They weren't receiving them. They weren't walking around in despondency because they hadn't received them yet. Instead, they walked in faith because they understood we're strangers and pilgrims. We're moving toward the promise. The promise is still to come. And we're having a foretaste of that promise, but we're not there yet. And then verse 14, notice, for those who say such things, as those Old Testament saints did, declare plainly that they seek a homeland, that they're on their way to their true home. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And, and that, should, that should bring to mind what Jesus said to his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. And so this is the heart. This is hopefully what's being stirred up in our, in our hearts. Now let's move on and see what Paul has to say on this subject. So would you turn to Philippians or you could say, you know, Paul wrote Hebrews, and so you already heard Paul. Well, let's see what he says in another, another place. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Paul writes this, and, and remember that Paul wrote this while he was imprisoned in Rome. It's one of his prison epistles. He says, not that I, I have already attained, or I am already perfected. So um, Paul hasn't arrived Okay, Paul didn't, wasn't perfect in this human life, so you and I aren't going to arrive either. He says, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So you see Paul moving forward. Now, it's a life of movement even though Paul was imprisoned. Right? In other words, um, spiritually, Paul was still moving forward. He was still sharing with people. So maybe you're in a condition health-wise or you know, whatever it may be where you feel like, well, physically, I'm not moving well. And, 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 and that's, that's part and parcel of living in a fallen world. But you can move still spiritually. You can grow in maturity. You can keep pushing, pushing forward in that way. Next, let's please turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy Chapter 4, looking at verses 6 through 8. And this is where, this, this was the second time Paul was imprisoned in Rome. Um, this time he's not under house arrest. He's actually in the Mamertine prison. He's about to be executed for his faith. And so he sees the handwriting on the wall. He knows that death is coming. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, he says this, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. That word departure is so beautiful in the Greek. It was used of unmooring a ship. As a ship is about to set stale, when you take the ropes off, Paul's saying, it's my time. I'm about to depart. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It's beautiful. This, this incredible thing that, that Paul was saying, my pilgrim days are almost over. I'm about to go home. 
So as we see in these verses, it is crucial to maintain a pilgrim mindset as believers. It's incredibly important. Now, as I was thinking about this, I want to share with you one illustration. I won't have you turn there, but you know, we're going through, um, we're, we just started Deuteronomy in my seventh grade Bible class at school, just went through Numbers, and the interesting thing about the book of Numbers is in Numbers, that's when they refused to go into the promised land. And because the Israelites refused to go into the promised land, they basically wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until they died out. And so for us, it's very important for us to understand and think about our mindset. Do we want to be those people who are like the, the waiting just to die? The unfaithful in the wilderness, wandering around in this life, just waiting to die? Or do we want to be that next generation that was being raised up so that they would take the promised land? Because I think many believers end up just wandering in this life. They're not thinking about where they're going. They're just trying to kill time until they die. But I don't want to be like that. I don't want you to be like that. I want you to be like that generation that was there in, in the wilderness, but they were preparing, they were listening, they were, they were ready to go into the promised land and take it. We have that choice to make. Will we simply wander through this life until we die, or will we live as pilgrims on our way to our true homeland? Let's turn back to 1 Peter 1, 1. And we read, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now that word dispersion, it really just means scattering abroad. So these were Christians who were scattered. They were scattered. And so we'll talk about why in just a minute. But I, I want to also uh, explain the, another uh, uh, definition of dispersion. It was actually scattered as seed. Scattered as seed. So it's this idea of, um, you know, like, if you, you know about broadcasting, you've heard the word broadcasting with radio. Actually, that's taken from how they would spread seed, right? They would reach in the bag and they would broadcast. They would throw the seed out there. Similar idea of this scattering of seed, that's a dispersion. And I thought that's very interesting to think about because this is what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, shortly before he ascended into heaven. He said in Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So that was God's goal. Jesus' goal was that the disciples receive the Holy Spirit, be filled, led, guided by the Holy Spirit, and then go out and share the gospel throughout the earth. But if you read the book of Acts, what you see is they didn't actually do that until persecution ramped up. They didn't actually do that till things got difficulty and they actually had to move out. And so I think that's this dispersion. So the dispersion here in 1 Peter, what's going on is, is that these pilgrims Peter was writing to were most likely a mix of Jewish and Gentile believers who had been dispersed by the persecution that was ramping up. So as things got difficult, they had to move from wherever they were to try to find a peaceful place. But I think there's something for us here. Because I believe God often uses difficulty to scatter us as seed so that we might bear good fruit in other places. Um, so, so you may be the most useful to God when things are the most difficult. As God is just, you're just like, well, God's killing me here. He's destroying me. He's breaking me to pieces. That may be when whatever he's put into your heart as he breaks you open, now that seed is dispersed. Now you're actually able to minister to other people's lives. I love how Jesus put it, speaking of his death in John 12, 24. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, 
Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. There may be things in your life and my life today that God says, I've got to break that open. I've got to spread that out. It, it's time. And so I believe that's what he was doing with these pilgrims. Now, as we continue on, it's helpful to understand that Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, they refer to the region of Asia Minor, that, minor that's modern-day Turkey. So, if, you know, if you kind of think about modern-day Turkey, and you just say, like, well, Steve, now you just made me hungry for lunch. Um, and so... If you, modern day Turkey, that's where these people were that Peter was writing to. And that's, this brings us to our final section, and that's privileges. And we find this in verse 2. And in a crazy twist, I'm actually going to spend the most time in my last section. Uh, breaking type here. So we're going to look at privileges here in verse 2. And by, before I read the verse, I want to define the word privilege. Privilege is a special right or advantage granted or available only to a particular person or group. Now, if you're familiar in culture, this word gets thrown about a lot in a lot of different ways and a lot of inflammatory ways. I'm avoiding all of that today. That's not what I'm concerned with. What I'm concerned with is the fact that as Christian, as a believer, you have special rights and advantages. That as a believer in Jesus Christ, someone who's been born again by the Spirit, you have certain things that are granted and available only to you as a believer because you are a believer. Now, here's the good news. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that anyone who believes in him, right, would not perish but have everlasting life. So the fact is this, these privileges that we're going to read about today that I hope you take to heart, that you believe, that you walk in, they're open to anyone who will place their faith in Christ. That's great news. Now, we're going to see in verse 2 that as believers, we have incredible privileges, but I want you to see who they're granted to you by. They're granted to you by the triune God. We're going to see in verse 2 that every member of the Trinity is involved in bestowing these privileges upon us. Verse 2, we read, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace be multiplied. Now, let's look a little closer at this verse. Peter writes that, that these believers are pilgrims who are, notice, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, I notice some of, some of your translations actually put elect in verse 1, and so there's just differences in how they interpret or how they translate. But I want to speak about this for just a minute, because when it comes to these words elect and foreknowledge, for some of you that are familiar, you know, the hairs on the back of your neck start to stand up, you know, and it's, it's a little challenging. Literally, oceans of ink have been spilled debating over election and foreknowledge. It's mostly, mostly digital ink these days, uh, but all kinds. And I've studied these subjects extensively, and if you're interested, I would encourage you to do the same. But before we get into it and kind of just give you a, a little overview of, of my take on this or what I want to share here, is I want to remind you that there are many, many, many different mysteries in the Bible. That the Trinity, one God and yet three persons, yet each fully God. And, and we start, if you want, you want to give yourself a headache today, go home and solve the Trinity, all right? Just, just figure that out. Figure out how the uncreated God is three in one and how me as the created is supposed to figure that out. Can't do it. 
And then you say, well, well, let me move on to the next mystery. How about the hypostatic union, which I just love to say. It's so cool. Hypostatic union, it's the fact that Jesus Christ, uh, the, the second person, I'm sure, sorry, the, the word of God, the second person of the Trinity, fully divine, takes on a fully human nature. That's the hypostatic union. How is it that Jesus is both truly God and truly man, and the one doesn't overwhelm the other? How does all that work? I don't know. What about the substitutionary atonement? The, the fact that Jesus Christ's death pays for all my sins. Why should it be that one man would live a perfect life, die a death for me, and God credits that death to my account? I don't know. Well, then the list goes on and on. I'm sure if you just study your Bible, you'll say, well, there's a whole lot of mysteries. So this election and foreknowledge, though many authors proclaim to have solved it, let me respectfully say they have not. They don't know. And so for anyone who says that they've got it all figured out, I must humbly submit that they have not figured it out. So for our purposes, I want to share just a few simple, simple thoughts on these two words and just tell you what these words actually mean in the Greek without a bunch of baggage or anything. Elect simply means chosen. That's all it means. The word elect means chosen. So as I thought about this, huh, in relationship, you know, Brandy and I have been married for 25 years. And the fact of the matter is, I chose Brandy for marriage, but guess what? She also chose me. And isn't that how it is in any and every true relationship? One party does the choosing, but the other party has to choose as well. And and so the fact of the matter is, we want to rejoice that we're the elect of God, but also realize that we had to place our faith in Christ to enter into this relationship. Well, what about the word foreknowledge? Well, foreknowledge simply means to know beforehand. And this should come as absolutely no surprise if we believe that God is omniscient. (laughs) If God is omniscient, of course he knew beforehand. Of course he's always known. But then we say, and we get a little aggravated and frustrated, but how does this election and foreknowledge work? How does it all tie together? How does it? Let me just say, it doesn't matter how it works. It doesn't. Because you and I have nothing to do with God's election or his foreknowledge. That's not anything on our side of the table. What is that to you and to me? You see, election and foreknowledge is not something to fret over. It's not something to argue with other believers about. It's a privilege to rejoice in. Let's take a step back and remind ourselves, what is Paul doing in this letter? Why would he use the words elect and foreknowledge? What is the purpose? Paul is writing to these suffering pilgrims and letting them know that in the midst of their difficult journey, they have always been known by God and that he has chosen them for relationship. That's the heart of it. Sometimes we get lost in these things as believers and we want to have it all solved and we want to figure it out in our minds. The fact is, the matter is, when you and I consider that God has chosen us, God has known us and wants to be in relationship with us, that should settle everything. So please hear me, fellow believer. God the Father knows all that you have ever done, all that you will ever do, and yet has chosen you for relationship. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. He has invited you, he's invited me into unending fellowship with him, and that's an incredible privilege. Let's move on now in verse two, and we see our next privilege in sanctification of the Spirit. So we move on from God the Father now to the Holy Spirit. Now at this point, I want to remind you of something that you probably already know, but there are actually three stages of salvation. Three stages of salvation. Now that's a phrase that you say, whoa, what do you mean by that? Well, I want to remind you that the word salvation actually means deliverance. 
Salvation means deliverance. So I want to give you those three stages, and you'll see them up here. You're familiar with them. Stage one of salvation is justification. So we have a slide there. Justification took place the moment you were born again by the Holy Spirit. The moment you in your heart believed that Jesus Christ died for your sins, you were born again by the Spirit, and you were delivered from the penalty of sin. So that's the past tense aspect of our salvation. It took place the moment you were born again. You were delivered from the penalty of sin, and it's past tense. Now, Next, we'll move to the second stage of salvation, and that's sanctification. And anybody who wants my notes, I can email them to you. And I know there's a lot going on here today. The word sanctification is that ongoing process through our earthly life as a believer. So you are currently in the stage of salvation that's sanctification. You're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So you are being delivered from the power of sin. You were delivered from the penalty of sin. Now you are being delivered from the the power of sin. That's the present tense tense aspect of your salvation. And so it should be that as you grow as a believer, God is continually delivering you and you become more and more like Christ. And then thirdly and finally, we have glorification, the final stage of our salvation, a future event that will take place when you enter heaven. And at that moment, you will be, future tense, delivered from the presence of sin. And you will be like Christ. It's exciting to think about. So there's all this incredible privilege that we have. And so Peter's reminding all pilgrims that the Holy Spirit is the one who sanctifies believers. The Holy Spirit is the one who sets believers apart and gives them victory over sin. I want to share some verses that speak on this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 Paul writes, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And just so, you know, if, if you physically take up hiking, let's, let's say you live somewhere that wasn't here. <laughs> you, you live somewhere where you could actually go hiking and not die of heat stroke, right? And, and you could see things. If you took up hiking, you would start to look different right? You start to get in better shape, you know, you, you start to, you know, start getting tan, all those kind of things, and you could be, you could tell. So it is as we are going as pilgrims and the sanctification of the Spirit, we start looking different. We start looking like Christ. That's what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that the Holy Spirit is, is transforming us into the image of Christ little by little. Then in Romans 8 verses 28 and 29, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, there it is again, whom he foreknew, he predestined, predestined toward what? To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. I believe Romans 8, 29 is actually the meaning of life. The meaning of life is that we would be conformed to the image of his son, that you and I would look more and more like Christ. And so what I want to encourage you, what I want to exhort you toward, especially if in your Christian life, you feel like, man, I'm just not making much progress. It doesn't seem like I'm changing what's going on. I want you, please, cultivate a relationship with the Holy Spirit. 
cultivate a relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit. Have an openness to the fruit of the Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit to bear fruit in your life. Have an openness to the gifts of the Spirit and to be even to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I know that there's a lot of all kinds of things, but I'm just going to use that word. What I mean by baptism of the Holy Spirit is to surrender yourself fully to the Holy Spirit. Surrender yourself to his leading, to his guiding, to his equipping. And as you and I do that day by day, the Holy Spirit will conform us into the image of his son. He'll sanctify us and we'll be those pilgrims that God desires us to be. I love the way Dallas Willard spoke of this subject in his famous renovation of the heart. He says, quote, without the gentle though rigorous process of inner transformation, initiated and sustained by the graceful presence of God in our world and in our souls, the change of personality and life clearly announced and spelled out in the Bible and explained and illustrated through Christian history is impossible. We not only admit it, but also insist upon it. But on the other hand, the result of the effort to change our behavior without inner transformation is precisely what we see in the current shallowness of Western Christianity that is so widely lamented and in the notorious failures of Christian leaders. What Willard is saying is he's saying we need the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out. It's not about rules. It's not about regulations. It's not about lists. It's about a participation, a relationship of submission to the person of the Holy Spirit to allow him to do his work in our lives. So this sort of inner transformation, this sanctification of the Spirit is only possible, please hear me, as we willingly and continually surrender to the person of the Holy Spirit and the work that he is seeking to do. I'm going to give you a couple of verses related to this. Ephesians 5 verse 18 says, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. A person who's drunk with wine, you know, there's a reason they call them spirits, right? Because they're under the influence. But for us as believers, we want to be filled with the Spirit. That means we want to be influenced by the Spirit, governed by the Spirit. Well, also oftentimes in the New Testament, the Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of Christ. So how can you and I know if the Holy Spirit is really working in our lives and changing us, we become more like Christ? The more that you and I are filled with the Spirit, the more we'll look like Christ. And then I love what Paul writes in Galatians 5.16. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So as we walk in the Spirit, we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And, and walk means a manner of life. As I was thinking about this, it came to my mind, you know, when, when Brandy and I used to go to school at A&M, and on the A&M campus, there are certain areas where you can't walk on the grass. But you know what? They give you sidewalks to walk on. And so you're not supposed to walk on the grass. You're supposed to walk on the sidewalks. And as you choose to walk on the sidewalks, you actually get used to walking on the sidewalk. I believe that's life in the Spirit. You see, we used to walk on the grass. We used to fulfill the lust of the flesh. And we actually have to start walking on the sidewalk. But the more that we walk on the sidewalk, the more that we submit to the Holy Spirit, then we get used to it. And those become our new paths. Those become our new ways of doing things. But we have to choose to start doing that. And you and I can say, well, it's stupid to walk on the sidewalk. I'm going to take a shortcut. Who cares about the grass? Who cares about it? I don't understand it. I don't know why this rule is here. I'm going to do what I want to do. And then we miss out on what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. If we would just walk on the sidewalk, if we just walk in the Spirit, then what we're going to find is a newness of life, a fruitfulness in our lives. Moving on in 1 Peter 1-2, we come to 
our next privileges. Notice, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. We think about this, the privilege of obedience. That word obedience, it means doing whatever you want whenever you want to. Okay, you're still awake. All right. Obedience actually means compliance. It means submission. So please understand, we have, not, we have not been brought into a saving relationship with the triune God so that we might do whatever we want to do. Jesus Christ hasn't saved us from our sins so we can escape hell but live like hell for the rest of our lives. He hasn't done that. Doing whatever we want is what we needed to be saved from. <laughs> that was our old life, things we were ashamed of. Instead, we have been brought into a relationship of obedience with the Lord Jesus because, please hear me, that's the best possible life. A life of obedience to Jesus Christ is the best possible life. It's a life of freedom. But don't take my word for it. Here's what Jesus said. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Obedience to Christ is a privilege. We were, we're no longer slaves to sin, but now we're slaves to righteousness and bearing the fruit thereof. Continuing on in 1 Peter 1, 2, the next uh, privilege from Jesus is the sprinkling of the blood. If you're familiar with the old covenant, there was a practice under the Mosaic covenant where they would sprinkle blood on items to purify them and to sanctify them, to purify them and set them apart to God. That's what he's done with us. Jesus has sprinkled his blood upon us. Now we've been purified by that blood and we've been set apart to God by that blood. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, his death in our place has purified us and set us apart. Paul put it this way in Romans 5 verses 8 and 9. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And this now brings us to the final privileges of 1 Peter 1, 2. He says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. So grace, I, I was taught this a long time ago. It's a little acronym, is a God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. That's super helpful. That means uh, it's, it's really God's unmerited favor. So grace is getting the good that you do not deserve. That's God's grace. All the wonderful things that he has given you in this life, that he has prepared for you in heaven with him, are all grace. You and I don't deserve it, but God gives it to us through Christ, and then we have peace. What is peace? Peace is an end of hostility. It's a settled assurance. And so remember, in the scriptures, it's always grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace always comes first. You, you need God's grace before you can have God's peace. But the wonderful thing about God's peace is you can have both peace with God and the peace of God. So now we're not only no longer enemies with God, we have peace with God, but we actually have in our hearts the peace of God, the settled assurance of his goodness and of our assured future. And so Peter closes with these words, peace be multiplied. Multiplied. Now, I learned as I, in my study, this is something called an effective impartation. In other words, this is an imperative. He's basically saying, abounding peace come upon you. That's his hope 
for the pilgrims. And this reality of peace being multiplied on our lives, it's a reality that's tied to the reign of the Messiah. So in the Old Covenant, they were looking forward to the Messiah, not only Messiah coming, but actually the, ruin, I'm sorry, the reign of the Messiah, which we're also looking forward to when Jesus Christ returns and rules for a thousand years. I'm going to give you a couple of verses that speak of this peace that's tied with the Messiah. Psalm 37 verse 11 says, but the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Isn't that so exciting to think that that's in our future? The day is coming where you and I are going to be on the earth as Christ reigns and we're going to enjoy an abundance of peace. And then you're familiar with Jesus as the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9 verse 6, the prophecy, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I don't know if I broke a rule by quoting this not at Christmas, uh, but you know, we're going to do that anyway. Final verse of our study, Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven, assure us of God's peace. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We'll stop here for today and Lord willing, we'll pick up in verse three next week. And as we close and move into communion, may you be inspired by how the Lord worked through the Apostle Peter. May you be reminded that you're pilgrims on your way home. And may you be encouraged by the incredible privileges that are yours now and forevermore. Let's pray.